turn with me this morning once again to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 14. We mention this often, but I just want to repeat it again today. We certainly believe that the public reading of Scripture is a vital part, a central part of our assemblies together. Uh, we're told, commanded in Scripture, give attendance to reading. Paul admonishes Timothy in the leading of the church. But I do that because I want to read a, a lengthy portion today, and I want you to be mindful. Uh, I want you to be thinking as we read. I trust you always are, but I just remind you today, one of the pieces of my youth, the many pieces that the Lord used in bringing me to the doctrines of grace, uh, sometimes just atmosphere in services, uh, just something was not right. I remember hearing preachers um, sometimes read exceedingly brief portions of Scripture, sometimes not read Scripture at all. Um, one of the things that stood out often was almost a flippant reading. to Get it out of the way so we can get to the, the good stuff, what I'm going to say. You just think that one through. A preacher's mindset toward God's Word before the people versus his own. But I want to read all of chapter 14 today <clears throat> and down seven verses into chapter 15. I'm going to take this as one section and perhaps take this as one message. Um, so that's my intention, but I just ask you to be thoughtful uh, as we read this together today. So Romans 14, beginning in verse 1. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth, let him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day, regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day, to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that He might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I saith the Lord, every knee shall to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us out of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, and put a stumbling block for an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat, for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, things wherewith one may edify another. For meat, destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. 
It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in the thing which he alloweth. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat. Let me just pause. This is another occasion where the word damned is, appears in our English Bible. We pretty much exclusively use it now with reference to eternal punishment. Um, but it was used at times of any type of condemnation. Uh, and here the translators uh, have used it in a sense of condemned rather than that eternal condemnation where we always would use it. He that doubteth is condemned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive ye one another, as Christ also hath received us to the glory of God. Amen. We trust that the Lord will add His blessing to the public reading of His inspired Word. Bow our heads and our hearts together. <clears throat> our Heavenly Father, we are grateful again for the privilege of sitting under the public reading of Scripture. Lord, can we but imagine a day in which that would be withheld from us. Lord, so let us not take lightly such benefit. We do pray for grace as we come to a portion of Scripture that is most easy to misapply. It can be the source, as it is put before us, to be a source of peace. It can often be a source of contention and strife. So Lord, give us wisdom. Give us grace. Give us gospel hearts in coming to this portion today we ask and we we pray it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. I saw an outline this week in one of my commentaries that I wish I had seen earlier. Uh, it's in the commentary by Leon Morris on Romans. I'm about to say it's a new commentary, but, well, I look around and I see several seats filled by people that weren't born yet when it was written. So, again, my chronometer stands examination, I think in the 90s. Um, but I have not so much stolen his outline, but gleaned greatly from him and pieces we suggested in this practical section about how to deal with my brother, how to deal with the world, the unsaved, how to deal with my government. And I forget what my title was last week. I'll have to check with him online. But Morris had a wonderful... Uh, addition to that outline that, well, I just, one of those you kick yourself, but I didn't include Romans 12, 1 and 2 in that outline, but he did uh, in this section, which he lists as from Romans 12, 1 to Romans 15, verse 13. His opening heading was just those first two verses, the Christian's attitude toward God. Duh, Kimbrough, you could just have thought a little bit and got that one. But the Christian's attitude toward God so plainly set out in those opening two verses, followed by the Christian's attitude toward his brother, then the Christian's attitude toward the non-believer, and then the Christian's attitude toward government, and then more what we considered last week under this title, uh, the Christian's attitude towards people in general. And we just suggested that and dealt with it. Now I remember under the headings of Embedded, uh, and embattled. Uh, we're all men and we live in a fallen world, so we must have on the armor 
of God as children of the light and out of darkness like we once were. But today I want to consider and suggest Morris maybe should have continued his outline as I'm going to do. And I want to consider the section we've read today. Morris and many others carry it to verse 13 of the 15th chapter. Verse 7. I haven't worked through that thoroughly enough to dogmatically say all these other guys are just wrong. Uh, but I think it's interesting where we ceased our reading, uh, Paul has opened in chapter 14, verse 1, Receive ye one another, but not to doubtful disputations. And then in verse 7 of chapter 15, he says again, Receive one another. And so I want to look at this and just follow that outline I've borrowed that I've so recently seen. And have our thoughts today collected under this heading, the Christian's attitude toward matters of indifference. Morris just left the pattern and says this section deals with love and liberty. Well, that's fitting indeed as well. But I think very often, perhaps most often, we consider this chapter as one of the key chapters in the New Testament that does give us instruction with regard to matters of indifference. It gives an extended discussion here. I said last time that when we come to the end of chapter 13, in some ways we've, we've kind of come to the critical section. Because this gospel that he so thoroughly, carefully outlined in the opening 11 chapters play out in life. Well, what's our attitude toward God? What's our attitude attitude toward the lost, their attitude toward the world in which we, we live. And then in conclusion, just our attitude toward mankind, we might say in general, whether they're a brother or an unbeliever, I'm indebted, indebted to them. I owe them love. I owe them fulfilling God's law with regard to my relationship with them to be one of love. The world doesn't live that way. The world wants to the other way. is so much a part of the that that we're swimming upstream. We're we are different world. But I say he comes in chapter fourteen to with a particular application of the gospel that requires some extended thought. And as I said, we're just going to consider it under the heading a Christian's attitude toward matters of indifference. So I say, and since Paul's covered all the bases by the time he finishes chapter 13, but he comes now to this particular issue, and we might even say this particular problem. Because it is a perennial problem. of indifference. How do we deal with one another as believers when we might not see eye to eye on some things that the Scripture doesn't put plainly before us how we ought to see them? This is a study. Romans 14 is one of several portions. Paul deals with a very similar theme in 1 Corinthians at length as well under that more specific category of meat offered to idols. This is somewhat different, but yet the same theme. Uh, it's worthy of extensive study. It's worthy of books to apply all the case studies and all the ways in which this can be applied, the ways that this can be transgressed uh, in our modern context. And I don't want to break off into anything like that. I want to keep in pattern of what we've done, just trying to do and deal with the argument of Romans. So I'm taking a big chunk. Uh, I am admittedly approaching a subject that is worthy of more careful, more thorough, more specific study and application. But I think it's one of those things, if we can grasp the principles, then the applications become a little easier. Something I've said before that it's a tendency in the church at times for 
what we used to call seminarism. Uh, people talk about dealing with principles, and they really deal with particulars. Uh, you get lists about particular things, and instead of the principles that you need to take with you to apply to the thousand and one different particular things that no seminar can ever fully cover. So I want to come today and approach it. I want to give you, I'll suggest my outline to you here, five headings, and Lord willing, we'll come through all of these, as I said in our, our one message today. I want to speak perhaps briefly, firstly, on the parties that are concerned. The parties concerned, who's Paul dealing with? What's he dealing with here in Romans? Secondly, the matters involved, we might take a little more time and flesh out some application there. Thirdly, the tendencies exhibited, I hope those will be perhaps even just two words that we take with us from the passage today. Fourthly, the rebuke communicated. And then fifthly and finally, the response expected. So that's where we're hoping to go today. And again, this is one of those messages that it could be rather brief. It could be exceedingly long. Uh, I'll try not to make it the latter. But think with me firstly then as we think about our attitude toward matters of indifference. First, the parties that are concerned. Well, actually, this is a pretty easy part of it because they're named. Uh, Paul speaks in the first verse of chapter 14 about the weak. And then he doesn't name them, but there's another group by implication in chapter 14, those that aren't the weak. But he says in chapter 15, verse 1, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. So the parties that are concerned here are the weak and the strong. And we can even go so far as to say Paul includes himself, verse 5, chapter 15, verse 1, as among the strong. Notice he doesn't say in this the right and the wrong. He speaks of the weak and the strong. That's a different perspective. Uh, that's important to keep in mind. So as we come here, it also is important as we look in the first verse of this section, him that is weak in the faith. It doesn't say him that is weak in faith. Someone who is spiritually deficient. Someone who's not a believer. Somebody who didn't get the gospel. He's not described in that way. He's described as one who's weak in the faith. And so the weakness that is present in the life of this person or this category of persons is a, an insufficient or a yet not fully developed understanding of how the gospel might apply in some areas of life. It's not that he's an unbeliever. Paul's not here talking about the Judaizers that he was rebuking in Galatians. Paul's whole tone here in Romans 12 or Romans 14 and 15 is one of inclusion, is one of love, is one of acceptance. The Judaizers, the false teachers that were bringing in works righteousness to the churches of Galatia were not dealt with in this way. They were a different breed, if you will. They were outside the faith. Here, it's those that are weak in the faith. There's every indication as we consider the parties concerned that what Paul's dealing with is Jewish believers within the Christian community that were still holding on to certain aspects of Jewish ceremony. Now you think about that, you think about the first century, you think about what we read in the book of Acts and that history of the early decades of the New Testament church, that was a difficult season of transition. It wasn't just difficult for the guy on the totem pole, if you will, there were struggles among the apostolate. Paul rebuked Peter, not for his doctrine, but for some of his actions among the believers of Galatia. For a, side, for a season, he pulled aside from the Gentiles among the believing bodies and was only dealing with the Jews and 
carrying on Jewish custom and sending a wrong message. And so here, I say when we come to this, and our next point is going to be closely connected, when we look at the matters that are involved, it seems to indicate to us that it was between Jewish believers holding on to, still attaching some significance to Jewish ceremonies that they'd grown up with. They had appropriately followed and part of their lives before the coming of Christ. And so these are the parties that are concerned. Those that understand the Jewish ceremonies can be set aside. Now again, let us pause. The Jewish ceremonies didn't have to be set aside. They could be set aside. Remember the early days of the church. The whole Jerusalem council came together to discuss the matter of circumcision. What do we do with these uncircumcised Gentiles? They're getting saved. They're coming into the church. Jews that have trusted in Christ are gathering together with them. And everything in our background, everything in our experience, and everything in our very being says, what's happening here? We've got to talk about this. And so the very first Presbytery meeting of the New Testament church, which is Presbyterian, we'll deal with that all later, um, met in Jerusalem, the council. The apostles didn't decide the question alone. There was a gathering of the apostles and elders for to consider this question. And when they went forth from that, we see Paul in a most remarkable way, the Lord in his providence putting in the history and in his word, Paul comes to a young man who was the child of a Jewish mother and a Gentile father. He's a believer. He circumcised Timothy. Didn't the Jerusalem Council just say we didn't have to do that? Yeah, that's what it said. We don't have to do that. It didn't say you're forbidden from doing that. Well, there were good reasons for Timothy to be circumcised. He was of Jewish descent. A mixed marriage, he was of Jewish descent. And Jewish believers and the Jews of the dispersion, Timothy was going to travel with Paul. For Timothy to have been uncircumcised as a Jew would have been difficult for them to deal with. And so Paul had no qualms about having Timothy submit to a Jewish ceremonial ritual of circumcision that is required in order for people to be saved. Another companion of Paul's, Titus, that would join with him is a Gentile, no Jewish heritage. And it just explicitly stated Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. So you have an example in Paul of how Jewish ceremony could be fault, no harm, no disruption of the gospel. And it could be abandoned with no fault and no disruption of the gospel. And that's what is on display for us here in Romans 14. There were matters of meat, of food. There were some that would not eat of the certain meats that were common in the church at Rome. And there were those that observed certain days. So, again, every indication based on these things, the parties that are concerned are Jewish believers who are holding on to ceremony and Gentile believers and perhaps some enlightened Jewish believers that were readily abandoning Jewish ceremony. So let us come quickly then to our second heading, the matters involved. We've listed them already. Diet, verse 2, and then verses 20 and 21, and then we might, for alliteration's sake, say days. Verse 5 and following. Now it's interesting here, Paul's not elaborating on either of these. He's really using these two things as examples of the bigger principle that he is elaborating on. What's our attitude toward one another in matters of indifference? 
where we might disagree. We might have different practice one from the other. The diet is plain enough, but the days I want to tarry on for just a moment. If you turn with me to Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, Romans 14 and Colossians 2 are key chapters that are referenced by a group of believers in our day and in church history that we would put under the title, the category, anti-Sabbatarian. People that don't believe there's a Christian Sabbath or that the Lord's Day is a day that should be observed by Christians. Um, I can't take an exorbitant amount of time uh, here, but I want to establish the fact that the Lord's Day is not what Paul's talking about in Romans 14, nor is it what Paul's talking about in Colossians. If you turn to Colossians chapter 2, if you read with me verse 16 and 17, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holiday or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. Very parallel to what we've looked at in Romans. Meat and drink, diet, and then this trio of things, days. Holiday or new moon or the Sabbath days. There is a book written by a couple of men that is promoting a, a new theology. It's 20 years or so in the making now. Among Primarily been among Reformed Baptists, but it's tried to make inroads elsewhere. It's called New Covenant Theology. It's not a new version of covenant theology. It's better perhaps described as the theology of the new covenant. In their book, they use Colossians 2, 16, 17 as a proof text 13 times with regard to their very vocal opposition to a Christian Sabbath. It's really one of the common denominators of that system that's trying to be invented. But they never really deal with the passage itself, they just list it as an obvious proof text that the Sabbath doesn't apply for Christians. And you can read that. You read Romans and you're familiar with that debate and you know that people that observe the Lord's Day are kind of fewer in number and a little more weird than the other Christians that don't. So you think, yeah, that's probably what Paul's talking about there. But is it? If you look at the consensus of church history prior to the invention of dispensational theology in the 1800s and the anti-Sabbatarianism that grew out of that, um, that isn't the way the church has understood these passages. Actually, it wasn't until recent years that I learned this, that little trio of phrases or items that Paul uses in Colossians Really, a little trilogy of terms that appears six times in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. And we won't look at all of these, but twice in Second Chronicles, once in Nehemiah, once in Isaiah, once in Hosea, and once in Ezekiel. These very three terms, this succession of terms, are used to refer to a Jewish succession of days, if you will. They focus on Jewish feasts, Jewish holidays. Some of the parts of the Jewish calendar were called Sabbaths that weren't the weekly Sabbath. And so when we come to Colossians 2 and Romans 14, it's, it's these days, these Jewish holidays that Paul's referring to and not the Christian Sabbath, not the weekly Sabbath. Now I know people would want to debate that and challenge that and go further. I just put that out there. But understand here, those Jewish feasts, those Jewish festival days, were Jewish. They were ceremonial. For all the anti-Sabbatarians, the Sabbath wasn't Jewish. The Sabbath, Christ said, was made for man. The Sabbath and Sabbath before the nation of Israel 
existed. The dates Paul has in mind here are Jewish and they're ceremonial. The weekly Sabbath is human instead of Jewish. It is moral. Again, placed in the ten words. Carved with the finger of God inside the ark covered by that lid of the mercy seat. Distinct from everything else God gave to Israel. So this is a little aside, but it is to say when someone just puts Romans 14 or Colossians 2 in parenthesis after their argument against the Lord's day, they're not really wrestling with all the questions. They're assuming a conclusion there. Again, to come back to our text, what then are the matters that are involved? Jewish ceremonies with regard to diet, with regard to days. These, Paul is saying, are not incumbent upon New Testament believers. They're part of the types and shadows. They're part of the ceremonies that can be done away. Because the fullness has come. The shadows are over. It wasn't wrong for a Jewish believer to continue to observe those. The problem may come, his weakness may come, when he feels obligated by those. He, he struggles with letting them go and allows that struggle to move into the realm of obligation. To such a point that he now is judging a fellow Jew that has abandoned them or judging a Gentile believer who refuses to incorporate them. And they're not obligated to incorporate them. There's his weakness. He's wanting to require something of the other believer that God doesn't require. And so here, the matters involved. Here's where I suggest we could tarry and go on for a long season. We could even talk about days with regard to the New Testament and our modern context and what days can and can't be observed. A discussion about the holidays of Christmas and Easter among Christians. Um, I appreciate the different perspectives. Um, I don't think it's firmly established that these are pagan in origin. But I've suggested even if the pagan origin were firmly established, think about a pagan in Rome. These days off from work. He used to go down to the bar and celebrate with all the other idolaters, and he didn't really care about the idol, he just was there for the drinks. But, uh, well, we're off work. What can we use these days for that we don't use them the way we used to? Use them this way. So put the whole pagan connection in there. A believer is sinfully engaging in paganism if he celebrates Easter or Christmas. We're praying on Christmas, but the early church, they were a lot bigger on Easter. Um, but again, that's one application. Bring it in other areas. We were, when Jan and I were younger, first married, we traveled to a, a small church in North Carolina for about a year on the weekends and helped out with Sunday school and different things. And there was a Couple, there were a couple families in the church. One of the men was involved in some ways in the church. I'm not sure if he was a choir leader or something. I don't know. But he very vocally let people know that he did not have a television. Um, you didn't have to know him very long before you knew that. He had relatives in the church. They not so vocally, but at one point when we were in their home for dinner, informed us that, yeah, he doesn't have a TV, but when he's over here, he never moves from in front of ours. And he always asks to come over for dinner when there's something on that he wants to watch. It'd be a lot more convenient and thoughtful of your family if you just had your own. But he was eager to let you know he didn't have one. 
but yet he still watched. There's something wrong. What's the implication? Well, I don't have a TV. Well, then it's easy for us to move to, and I think, well, think of the many areas where Christians come down on different sides of questions. I mentioned in our sermon a couple weeks ago about Romans 13 and our attitude toward government. We're in an election year. It has increased every year in my lifetime, which now spans some decades, that Christian perspective on politics is more intense. In some ways, it's natural because our country, our world is becoming more and more ungodly. There are political issues that touch directly on moral questions, on moral issues. And so there's some political issues that Christians have to see the same way because of the sheer morality that's involved or the immorality that is being promoted. But all things aren't quite that simple. You can look at two different for one office. Well, you can look at it, well, this guy is rascal. He's his eighth wife and his business dealings are questionable. Um, and he's the conservative. And then you got the liberal candidate and he's connected has some positions on moral issues that aren't that great, but he's on his first wife and he's got no bad issues in his background and how to handle that. Then you get the question of, well, you got a party that's connected to ungodliness. We gotta do anything we can to keep them out. So I go to the ballot box pretty much voting against instead of voting for. And then you got a Christian who says, I can't do that. This guy, surely because it's a vote against this guy, give my vote to him. Christians won't let me do that. I've got to vote for this third party guy that can never win in order to satisfy my conscience. You can have two Christians and look at that choice and say, this has to be the way. No, this has to be the way. And who's right? But we get bent out of shape about it. We could multiply examples in a hundred different areas of life. There can be matters of indifference. Matters where it's not wrong for us to hold this opinion. But it is wrong for us to require that every other Christian hold that opinion. If it is one of these matters of indifference the matters involved can we come quickly to our third topic here the tendencies exhibited here's what i suggested a while ago that if there's anything that you take away from today there are two words paul speaks here i think in the wisdom of god and the providence of god how succinctly put before us is the heart of the matter. Let him that eats not despise him that eats not. And let not him that eats not judge him that eats. The tendencies exhibited judging and despising. And folks, this is the heart of it. And this is everywhere. It is everywhere. And can I suggest to you that these two tendencies, just like we have studied and wrestled over the past and through the years with legalism and antinomianism, suggested to you that they're not opposites. They're the same theology, just wearing 
Judging and despising, in many ways, it's under the umbrella of the legalism antinomianism category. But it's one of those times where the judging and the despising is just the same mindset wearing different clothes. For the weak believer who's attaching too much significance to his particular matter of indifference, who then believes every other believer should attach the same significance to his matter of indifference, when he judges that person who doesn't see it his way, well, he's, he's entered into a legal spirit. Now take the mature believer. He looks at the weak brother. And he sees him attaching too much significance to an external thing. And he despises him. Well, what does that manifest? Is that a gospel heart? Is that gospel thinking? I despise this guy because he doesn't know as much as I do and he has a rule that I don't think he should have. But what am I saying then? I'm smarter than he is. I'm an enlightened Christian and he should become enlightened like me. He needs to do what I do. He needs to be like me. They both really are a manifestation of a self-righteous temper. Judging and despising. These are the tendencies that are exhibited. And I suggest to you they're both self-righteous. Think about the areas I, I don't necessarily even enter in, but I certainly don't live in the world of social media. But we live in a world today where every idle thought is posted. Every opinion is posted. Sometimes when perfectly legitimate things are posted or reposted, it's seen through the grid. Well, that came from so-and-so. What's he trying to say to me here? If the world even says social media has a problem with people hiding behind a screen and then blurting out things that should never be said, but they don't worry about saying because the person they're confronting isn't in front of them, that's a sad place. Let us be careful. Let us be mindful of our brethren. Let us be a little less confident that our opinion is the only way a Christian can see this particular thing. And again, the illustrations are numerous. You heard me talk about education. Public school, homeschool, Christian school. If we have the mindset, one of them is God's way, always, every day, only way, then Moses and Samuel and Timothy could never have been friends. Their parents would not have gotten along. Real Christianity, real holiness, real separation from the world isn't as easy as an external method. But again, as we said the other week, the tendency, and this would be the tendency of weaker brethren, is we want to fix spiritual problems by tangible means, earthly means. Now sometimes spiritual problems are fixed by growth and grace, by maturity. It may be that somebody moves a little bit more toward our way of thinking when we've been patient with them instead of in their face with our perspective 
on a matter of indifference. The tendencies exhibited judging and despising. They're everywhere. It's not about liberals, new evangelicals. They're everywhere, even among conservative, well-meaning, Bible-believing Christians, because the tendencies to judge and despise are in all of our hearts. Because there's a self-righteous part of our hearts that it's going to take glorification to finally eradicate. I get the students in one of my final exam questions in the soteriology class. I just sneak into one of the lectures. Martin Luther made a statement that, I forget his exact wording, but basically the legal spirit in him won't die. It's, it's there till he's glorified. And I put in there, how many years did Martin Luther say it took him to get rid of a legal spirit? 10, 20, 30. They go for it. They miss it. They couldn't ever get rid of it. Multiple choice. You try and be sneaky, you know. We have to be careful because the root of it is in all of us. Judging and despising our brethren. Let me come quickly to our fourth thought, the rebuke communicated. Paul takes a chunk of the 14th chapter and he approaches it from this perspective. Who are you? He's not your servant. He's Christ's servant. We all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You know, that's a text that we use as a parallel in Corinthians. Uh, we we kind of think of that eschatologically and from my background, you know, which judgment are you going to be at? This one or the other one? And maybe there's just one. But the context here is, is not so much an eschatological event, though certainly that's true. But the point is, is that we don't stand before the judgment seat of one another. Whose servants are we? Again, they're matters of clear morality. Paul was not in any way hesitant to speak up whether an individual or the corporate body had done wrong. But he says on these things, we don't stand before one another. We stand before God. And so he rebukes them to say, who are you? And so he admonishes us really if we could Summarize it in the phrases of gentleness and humility. And I think it's interesting because the last thing that Paul dealt with in chapter 13, we talked last week about indebtedness and we're indebted and we're embattled. The last part of chapter 13, our accountability, our relationships to people in general, to mankind in general, well, we're swimming upstream. We're different than everybody else. We've been born again. Worldly mindsets going that way, we're going this way, and there's conflict. We put on the armor of God. We're, we're in a spiritual battle. And then he comes to this section where he's saying gentleness. Gentleness. And you think about that. I thought about trying to look up some military story of you know, some battle hero. And bold and fearless and taking it to the enemy. Never want to mess with that guy. And he comes home to a daughter. And he's like a puppy dog. Well, well that's, that's it with us. As part of Christian experience, it's war. And as part of Christian experience, that is gentle. And he rebukes us for any time we would think, Everybody else got to answer to me. No. They and you have to answer to God. And then fifthly, the response expected. We may touch on this as we come to our next section, but the answer to this is easy. Love. Do those things that make for peace. Well, that's a great... Put that in the church planning curriculum for seminary students. Love. 
That's the response that's expected to this teaching. Whether you're the mature or the immature, the strong or the weak, applying the gospel is never going to look like judging or despising. You think of the mature. Paul says, we that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. You think about the believer that has understanding on matters indifferent, who's despising that weaker brother. What is he showing? He's showing that he hasn't quite yet reached full maturity because he's doing the same thing with different clothes on that he's barking at the other guy for doing because of his lack of mature knowledge. He's not applying the gospel. He's not loving his brother. Well, this is longer than I had intended. And this is, well, perhaps hasty isn't the most flattering word, but a hurried look at a huge topic with a lot of different points of application. But what should our attitude be on things different? What should our attitude be on of the Christians that differ with us on these things. Well, applying the gospel, what Paul has so carefully outlined and expounded in Romans, it isn't going to look like judging and it isn't going to look like despising. It's going to look more like Christ-like love. May we Give heed to God's Word today. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we confess as we read and meditate upon these words that, well, we even think of a hymn we sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. How easily we can slip into either of these sins. Oh Lord, give us a healthy application of the gospel. Show us more of Christ and work more Christ likeness into us. We ask these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.